I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Everyone knows therapy is great for solving problems, but getting therapy has its own problems too, like finding the right therapist, fitting into their schedule, and of course, the cost. Well, BetterHelp can solve those problems. It's totally online and built around your schedule. It's surprisingly affordable, too. Connect with a credentialed therapist by phone, video, or online chat, all from the comfort of your home. Visit BetterHelp.com to learn more and save 10% on your first month. That's BetterHelp, H-E-L-P. Hello, and welcome to episode 153 of the world's first Paul Weller fan podcast. I'm Dan Jennings, and 10 years ago, I gave up my live streaming career as a radio presenter with one big regret. Never getting to interview my hero, the legendary singer, songwriter, and musician, Paul Weller. This podcast exists purely to solve that issue. Welcome to Desperately Seeking Paul. And on this episode, something a little bit different as I share with you a very special recording from the Here Comes the Weekend event in Woking just recently. Essentially a big Weller Weekender celebration brought to you by Nikki Weller and Stuart D. Bill. You're going to love this one. Let's get into it with a fabulous Style Council special. Our next session is a celebration of probably the best pop group in the world. It is a real honour to be here, marking 40 years since the creation of the Style Council. (laughs) Unbelievable, right? It really has been four whole decades since the reveal of a new venture from a fella you may know called Paul Weller. He'd been in a pretty small band called The Jam. And an absolute wizard on the keys. A lovely chap who, at the time, had lots of even lovelier hair. Sorry, Mick. A fella called Mick Talbot. Their band went on to release... Oh, yeah, give it up. The band went on to release an incredibly diverse mix of singles, A-sides, B-sides, EPs and albums that incorporated elements of jazz, R&B, soul, pop and so much more. The music characterised by sophisticated and polished production. We talked a bit about that. We talked about the melodies. We talked about the catchy lyrics. Let's get into it. A real joy to reunite members of the band at this event today. We are joined by founding member of the Star Council. Please give it up, Mick Tolbert. And we also have some fabulous honorary councillors with us as well. Singer Jay Ella Ruth, a.k.a. Jay Williamson. Give it up. Brass musician, arranger, the man on the trumpet, the flugelhorn, Stuart Prosser. And the absolute delight, but bear with him, he's just given up smoking, so he's going to be in here for an hour with us. This could be challenging. Bass player, Kemal Hines, a man so good on bass that Paul Weller tapped him up again in the 90s. Give it up, Kamal! Okay, right, so, let's all have a seat. <laughs> let's start, Mick Talbert, with my Paxman-like questions. Take you back, summer 1982. Uh-huh, yeah, Weller's yeah. come back off tour from Japan. US, Japan. Right. Mix yeah. up with you. 
Something you say woos him away from the biggest band in Britain. Again. <laughs> what was it, Big Talbot? No, it's not quite like that. But, um, you know, um, we had a lovely meeting and uh, we got to know each other a little bit. I did a bit with Jam in 79 and a couple of live things. Uh, I didn't go on tour with them, but just played on London dates. And um, the last time I played with him, they got a Hammond organ in when I played a couple of nights at the Rainbow. And uh, they did a kind of add-on set for the encore of four soul covers and that was really enjoyable and uh, we did a bit of um, jamming at No Miss Rehearsal Studios and I think Rick and Bruce took a break they went for some food and me and Paul and Dave Little God bless his soul we all played sort of Booker T and Stax numbers together and we just had a real there was a real connection just the three of us and uh, I think that kind of it boded well, you know. That was two years before I got contacted by Paul about a new project. But um, I think that was a turning point in our kind of um, musical connection in a way, you know. So then obviously he tells the rest of the band that the jam is going to be no more. There's the final tour. But presumably you're chatting throughout the rest of that year about what's going to come. Because you, you hit the ground running straight on like after New Year, don't you? Yeah. I mean, I think it was probably like late August or something when I first was aware that they were going to split up. And and he did say, you know, there aren't that many people that know at the moment and news didn't travel quite as fast as it might do now with the internet, I suppose. So if the cat did get out of the bag, there are only so many people that think could be pointed at, you know. So I was thinking, well, better keep this under my hat proper. It was quite funny in a way from my end of things, trying to sort of, keep a lid on that really because it sounded quite exciting and I probably wanted to tell the world. You couldn't tell anyone? No, not really, no. It's Shaney though, did you tell Shaney? No, I didn't I didn't even know her. Oh then. okay. No. I knew her about six months after that, but I didn't know her then. Yeah, I just swore my mum and dad to secrecy and I think they're the only people I told, you know. Mm. And in the meantime, Jay, you were a fan of the jam, so the jam was the band that you were into. Was what Mick did here clearly, you know, uh, they may deny it. Was that a big thing for you? I mean, you love that band, right? They were, they were a big thing for you. You were singing their songs and all that. When I was at school, I was the only black girl in my school. I went to school in, in the era where teachers were openly racist as well as kids, because I hated school. But to get by from one day to another, I used to sort of sing every break. I used to go, I had a step that I used to sit on, I used to sing stuff. I really loved the German Elvis Costello. They were my two you know, amongst loads of others. So, yeah, I was very aware of who Paul was, very. We'll pick up your story in a second when you join the band, but let's go through all of you and introduce us. Stuart, the jam for you wasn't really part of your world until you actually started um, auditioning for the Style Council when you learned, like, all of the jams back catalogue, pretty much, right, for the audition, and then that wasn't needed. No, that's right. I love the sound of, of the jam and the, the whole soul and jazz and, and little later on the jazz thing, which is what I was really into. But uh, yeah, my audition um, came out. I was doing a lot of session work in London and I got a call to say, would I like to play with the Style Council? I mean, who would say no? So I said, yep, that'd be great. Went to the Solid Bond Studios and before that, I remember I, I thought I better learn some of the stuff. So actually, I, I got hold of as many copies of the jam singles that had brass on any Star Council stuff that was around, so the Cafe Blur, et cetera, learn every single thing, every note, thought, great, I've got it nailed. Uh, at least I can't fail on that. Turn up at the audition and um, Paul was in the control room. I think Mick was at the piano and Mick said, right, what do you want to do? And I was about to say something and he went, 
How about we just do a blues? I can't remember what key it was in, but you just said. What does that mean? Might have been in, I think it was just a blues. It's just you know a three chord uh, traditional twelve yeah. bar blues. Yeah. And um, I just had to then change my headset completely from you know I, I was going to play you know something from the jam, yeah. a bit of malice. Yeah, yeah exactly. And um, no, we ended up doing a bit of you know Kenny Wheeler for those jazz fans out there. It's, it's not the tour manager Kenny oh, Wheeler. Sorry, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, good point. The other one. <laughs> you wouldn't want him blowing down anything. <laughs> Yeah, I remember that. And Cam, in the meantime, you're a musician. You know, this is your career. You're a working musician. You've got your own band going on. So what's the jammer going on? You're doing your own thing. With a with a jam part of your world or not? You got because you, you've got the central line thing going on right then, right? Yeah, funnily enough, I first met Paul in Holland. We were on a the same TV show together, um, Top Hop, it was called. I think it was Top Hop, maybe. In, they had several hits, as you all know. And we had a hit over there at the time. And he was just sitting down in one sector of this studio and we were chatting away obviously i knew all about his career and he was really friendly and and warm and that was it we just just a a brief chat and we didn't see each other until i guess until i got a this new device called an answer machine panasonic answer machine little cassette thing in it you know and the first message on there was from 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 paul asking me to come and play on our favorite shop album having been to his studio and played some bass one late night a little bit tanked, I must say, on a Dizzy Heights gospel song. And I remember really enjoying it and slapping all over the place on the bass. And, and he kind of liked it and invited me in to play on this album. And that's when I met Mick and Paul and Dee and Helen and went on from there, basically. Cool. Now, the majority of you, in terms of your life with the Style Council, was through that live experience. And there is something very special about life on the road together. You know, relationships are formed. Bonds are formed or broken, depending on how the tour goes, right? But you know, in your case, you know, there were some really strong relationships formed on the road. And Mick, talk about the importance of the Honorary Council, because initially it was the first, very first marketing we saw was Paul and Mick. It was like a duo, the Style Council. But the Honorary Council was special for record and for life, wasn't it? Yeah, it's just having confidence in people and, and being aware of what they can do. Sometimes we were helped. I'm going to bring in Dennis Mundy again. He steered us towards quite a lot of people that we didn't know. He was helpful with a lot of that. And I think he was the person who first enlightened us about Steve Wyatt. But once we were confident or we knew people's stuff with Cam, you know, he was a big part of the Brit Funk movement. It's just like he's one of the founding fathers, you know. And, uh, you know, I remember him in his little Mac doing Beggar and uh, Company on top of the Pops and... You've got to check it out on YouTube. There's some <laughs> wonderful moves there as well. So we'll see those later on the dance floor. Look at this. So, but it, it was all about that. And that, that's kind of comes from Paul. So it's from the top down. When I first worked with him, he's very trusting. If he thinks you can do something, he's got a lot of enthusiasm about it and he trusts you to do it, you know. And, that, and we were kind of fortunate more times than often it, it worked, you know, and they haven't worked with these guys, you know, yeah. so we, we, we were lucky like that, you know. But it, it wasn't kind of like a X Factor Red Buzzer type audition process where people were sat in the waiting room and, you know, move next. Yeah, next well, I think thing, probably it? when I was just being a bit vague with Stuart, asking him just to play a blues, I think a lot of people can learn what is already there and that's great. And if people can learn quickly, I think we were quite keen on if we hadn't heard people to give them something wide open where they could kind of express themselves to see if they 
had a sort of creative thing or did their own thing. So just to give them a bit more freedom and see if there was a sort of personality or style to what they were doing, you know, because uh, that's a bit more than just copying the, what's gone, you know. And that, and that, I think that was just, whether that's right or wrong, that helped us to see if people had a kind of individual spirit as well, I think. I tell you, your audition process, so at the time you were at stage school, but I think you were working at the post office, I remember you saying to me as well, right? But yeah, how nerve-wracking was that? Was it a quick process? Talk me through the audition for you. Well, I was, um, I was a post office clerk, a job my mum got me because I'm not good with numbers. I hated the job. Uh, straight out of school, there was a theatre group that met near Hammersmith Post Office in the Riverside Studios called the Black Theatre Cooperative. And someone who came into Cash the Dole said, oh, you've got to come in and to this drama group. And I thought, yeah, yeah, I will one day. And I did. And I think the third time I ever went, the director asked me to audition and I got a role in a Sam Shepard play, rehearsing in an old church in Archway, I think Jackson Lane, something. And I was singing Minnie Ripperton songs in the loo because the acoustics were amazing. So he put, he put, he put a song well, in. You went to the loo just to never sing. Oh, to sing. Well, yeah. that was my habit, wasn't it? <laughs> I used to, I've got four brothers. I used to sing them to sleep until they were like, shut up. I was singing in the loo, put the song in. Yvonne French, she had her own TV show called Switch. I don't know if you, any of you remember. She's such a lovely woman. She came to see the play and she came up to me afterwards and said, um, Paul Weller's looking for a singer. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> she said, you got a demo. And I didn't know what a demo was. So I got myself a little four track. It wasn't a, a Tascam. It was some cheap knockoff. And, and then I asked a, a musician who was in Light of the World, who was in this play, to come around my house and help me do some demos. So we did a jazz number called Girl Talk, which is a Dakota Staten track, and um, a Gap Band number sent into Paul's studio and he called me the same afternoon. So I thought it was one of the guys in the play just winding me up. <laughs> yeah. So he's like, all right, Jay, it's Paul. And I'm like, yeah, right. <laughs> Who is this? Is it you, Nat? Fuck off, kind of thing. <laughs> and it was actually really poor. And he's like, oh, I'll, I'll just send him. What's your address? So I gave him my mum's address because I was still at home. He said, I'll send a tape round. Can you learn these songs? And I thought, all right, if a bike ever comes around my house... I'll know, and the bike was here in my, at my mum's house in an hour. It was like, I can't even tell you the type of like butterflies I had. And I had two days to learn Money Go Around, two other tracks I think it was. But Money Go Around was one that I was like, oh, that's high. <laughs> it was a Thursday, I think it was, because I, I found my 1984 diary and I wrote it in there. And I had to walk into this big studio and there was a grand piano in the studio and Mick was at the, the grand piano Paul was standing in there and my knees were like just not like percussion you know I was, my knees were knocking together and Paul was like all right Jay, yeah what, what should we start with should we start with money go around Mick started playing it and I'm like money go around, money. <laughs> <sighs> and I sung two other numbers and Paul said at the end of it because it was all a bit of a blur but I did manage to get some of this in my diary at the time he said all right Jay, go in the office see me dad and I'm like go in the office see me dad what? And I sort of like staggered into the office. John said, all right, Jay, come here, sit down. Come here. He said, how much do you want? <laughs> is, that, <laughs> is that how much you want? A ton? Or something like that. And I'm like, huh, what? Huh? And we shook hands and that was it. This doesn't sound like the most professional setups, Mick Talbot. <laughs> no, but um, what she's talking about is really 
somebody like Yvonne French connected us with more than just you. We, we, when we lost um, Helen Turner and she went on to do something else, we got um, Vivian McCone, who oh. was a really good musician and an actress, who um, I've since gone on to work with her brother quite a lot, Ernie McCone. I wouldn't have met Ernie without Vivian, and Yvonne French was really helpful. You know, we did The Switch, which is a program she used to present, a Channel 4 music program. But she was clued in and tuned into a lot of things. And I think she was an actress as well. And I think she even worked with Mike Lee and people like that, you know. So so she connected us with a lot of people. So that was always nice. Okay. So I mentioned the fact that um, you and Paul are fixed. That's the heart of this thing. And then even Steve White is an honorary counsellor. D, everybody coming into this mix. And at the beginning, you had Tracy Young with you on TV shows. You mentioned The Switch and DC Lee and stuff like that. But we're not going out on the road initially. You're doing lots of singles. The, the touring wasn't a thing straight away. But when it was, the two in the middle here are part of the very early gig. So the first gig they did was the um, Gold Diggers gig, which, fabulous gig, right? So this was 1984. And um, I mean, just televised on BBC at the time. And on radio, so just went on national radio at the time. I mean, no biggie, you know what I mean? And that was the first gig that you were part of, having, what, auditioned like a couple of weeks beforehand, probably, right? Just talk me through that, because you had quite a big role at one point in that gig as well, didn't you? Yeah, it all came around very, very quickly. So again, you know, about like the audition, I prepared and everything. But in one rehearsal, I think Mick and Paul had said they wanted to put a sort of instrumental melody over your your fabulous yeah, Le Depart. Flugel. Flugel, Flugel yeah. 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 The Flugelhorn solo, I thought, yeah, okay. So I wrote something that they seemed to like. So that was great. And we ran through it a couple of times. And then literally a couple of days later, I think it was right. We got our first gig and it's in this place in Chippenham. And I thought, great, safe, small little place. Nobody will be there. Fantastic. Uh, oh, by the way, it's live on BBC Two. And, you know, so it was, I don't know what Jay thinks, but it was, and it was fantastic to do, but it was, I was absolutely petrified. And because I had to do this Flugelhorn solo, it was in the middle of the set, sort of, it, nice sort of natural sort of flow to the set and the lights went down and we had actually quite a lively crowd in the front some of whom are here today probably uh, probably were yeah Yeah. exactly anyone here today who's there (laughs) wow okay fantastic (laughs) hope you're at the back you're at the front (laughs) i love your stuff um (laughs) who weren't necessarily a big fan of some of those quieter moments not not you but others (laughs) So I was I was quite scared about the whole thing and and the lights dimmed and it all went very quiet and I had to do this flugelhorn solo just me and Mick which was terrifying but after that that was it was kind of once we'd done that gig I don't know what Jay thinks once we'd done that gig I felt we were pretty ready for whatever came next when I did the audition I had no clue of Chippenham no but that just sort of popped up when we were in rehearsal so we hadn't finished rehearsing I had nothing to wear. I think the skirt I had was my post office skirt and my tights were my mum's burnt sienna because in, in those days you only had three shades of tights for black girls and hot chocolate burnt sienna and I don't know what the other one was, sandy colour. So I had my mum's burnt sienna tights on and some heels I couldn't walk in. You know, I was just like, and I just remember like shaking so hard and I think that's where my IBS started. <laughs> <laughs> And as much as I'd love to dig into that more. Um, Very delving interview. This has been, I don't know if you're in the room, whoever, whoever recently scaled this up for YouTube, we can now watch it in like high definition. I don't know if you, have you watched it back? This is just, this gig is fabulous. Not least for some of the moves as well. So when you were rehearsing, were you, 
Did that come into it, or was it just natural, the kind of moving around with Mr. Weller on stage and things? I think Paul and Mick just chose the right energy and the right energy. If you if you just put it out there, the right energy will come to you and vice versa. So, okay. yeah. Nice. All right, well, let's talk about some of these live moments. I want to talk, actually, first of all, I want to talk about this idea of being a European, because I think, I think it was back at the APARI, but Paul talking about the fact that um, we regard ourselves as European. In fact, I'm trying to apply for a world passport. This is my world, and I want to belong to it wholly. The first geeks were in Europe, not in the UK. Was that an essential thing to kind of turn away from the jam and do something different? We initially did, uh, we did do some dates in 83, and the first one was in Switzerland, and we all dressed in ski outfits, skiing jumpers. Uh, I don't know if it went down very well with the locals, but it tickled us. Yeah, that was really dipping our toe in, but we didn't play in the UK until 84 when Jay was on board and Stuart. I think uh, we thought we'd get a more receptive audience in Europe. There was quite a lot of, uh, you know, tension about the jam splitting. There was a lot of, uh, you know, a lot of people were quite disappointed and I can understand that. I've said in the past, I'm still getting over Ronnie Wood leaving the places and that was... 1975. <laughs> but uh, yeah, so I can understand. But we felt that we had a lot more freedom. We wouldn't be inhibited in any way. And, and it helped us develop and try out a few things, you know. So we never did play in the UK until 84. And it was the first one was a televised one. You know, it's just like, well, why not jump in the deep end? And, uh, you know, I don't know if we were ever very calculated or sensible about any of that sort of thing. But it's just like, well... It's got to happen at some time. Why not make it the beginning and build on that? But usually you'd think a band would kind of work up its chops. You'd, you'd, you know, you'd get match fit, if you like. You'll, you know, particularly a new band, new people joining, and then you do the big TV thing. It's still you'd think that, you know, but occasionally that's not always the way. I mean, now and again, when I've been, I've been in a pickup band for like a couple of Motown acts for something that happened about seven or eight years ago. I didn't know I had three mates in the audience. They really enjoyed it, and they, one of them surprised me. Come backstage and just went, "Ah, oh, it's brilliant! The band's so cooking. You've obviously got the London date at the end of the tour." And I went, "This is the beginning of the tour and the end of the tour. It was just one date. <laughs> you know, sometimes that's the way." Now I should know. I uh, should mention actually, Cam. Even though he joined the band as an honorary councillor later on, playing live with the band from what eighty-five time, actually was the first one on the panel to play with the Style Council, even though he may not have been in the room. Do you know this? So it was on the remix. The money go rounds with Bert Bevans, oh, right? So, so Cam, did you? I mean, were you in the? Was he involved? Was Paul involved? Or was it just with Bert? You know what? You mentioned this earlier on, and I, <laughs> you can't remember. <laughs> <that's a> bit, <laughs> well, also, I, 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 remember. I remember you for being on um, Long Hot Summer. Yeah, it was a I, remix I remember of that. that. I remember that one where, but, where uh, they didn't think my synthesizer bassline was up to it, and he had to replace it. Well, so, yeah, it was. Yeah. <laughs> You came in as a I'm better than Mick thing. Like, oh, wow. <laughs> no, they needed to make it something radically different. And uh, what Kamel gave it was quite a kind of reggae sort of sensibility, as I remember. It doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> it's all a blur to me, I can, I can assure you. Um, I do remember that. Yeah, it was, you know, you got a song like Long Hot Summer and that bass line there. I mean, you can't really match that. You can't really, you can't really top that, can you? Let's just face it. And we were of the era where... Dance music was asking and requesting record companies and artists and, and entities to do 12-inch versions. So I was obliging there to some extent. But to be honest, I knew that 
there was no way of, of actually interpreting something that could actually top what was already a classic. And that's being very honest about it, you know. So I guess with the directive, um, I can't remember at the time whether it was you or Paul who gave me the directive to do a, a, a bit I, of a... I think it was all coming from Burt Bevans. I mean, yeah, he, he, he was orchestrating yeah. that remix. I don't think we got too involved in that because we thought, right. well, we've done it yeah. the way we yeah. hear it. We're interested to hear it through someone else's eyes, you know. Yeah, yeah. I just, I just done what I could at the time. I'm not even sure what it was, but it, 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 it happened to work, and um, I got invited back. I think. Yeah. Yeah, 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 yeah. Talking of remixes, I spoke to Brendan Lynch on the podcast, episode 150. It's out this week. If you want to have a listen, he talks about the days of Solid Bond and this idea that in the morning you were you were starting the day, people were bringing in their favorite records, you were listening to music together and things like that in the studio. Was that similar on tour? What was the vibe like, Jay? What was the vibe like on that first tour in terms of? you know, listening to songs together, getting those influences and stuff and, and forming relationships because that's what you have to do. It's a long old day before you get to the gig in the evening, right? 84, I, I think I got my first Walkman. Or I had something in my headphones. I had headphones and music. I do know that. On the tour bus, we play films and music. Carry On was a big thing, wasn't it? Was it Carry yeah, On? Yeah, but I, I think I was telling someone the other day that because someone brought up um, Malcolm McDowell and um, I watched Oh Lucky Man and The Clockwork Orange on the Star Council tour bus. And I'll tell you what, I didn't sleep for about a week. It's absolutely freaking frightening movie. And I remember thinking at the time, but Paul and Mick are such lovely guys. I don't understand why they would watch such awful, evil stuff. Can I just add something to that? Because yeah. I remember that really, really well. In yeah. fact, Clockwork Orange, we had watched about three quarters of it when we got to the gig in the coach we did the gig and the first thing everybody wanted to do was get off get out of the gig back onto the coach to watch the rest of the film it's like yeah yeah great to see you all thanks for coming right clockwork orange <laughs> and the, but, that was banned at the time well yeah that's yeah. that's why it really had kind of some sort of i don't know we got engaged with it because it was quite a thing to have a copy of it you know i mean the director himself i think got it banned he didn't think it was suitable for uh, public consumption <laughs> so we wanted to know what it was about you know I wonder who got hold of that Kenny Wheeler I bet got hold of that right possibly I don't know <laughs> yeah. but um, no it kind of intrigued us because uh, this is a bit of a stretch to connect it but um, I, I did read that Andrew Lou Goldham who used to look after the Stones in the early days he had actually wanted to make that film about 10 years before it got made with the early Stones I think he had the rights to it in 1963 or something and it came out in 71 or something like that. He wanted to make the Rolling Stones, the Droogs, the gang that are central to it. But that never happened. But he used to write their sleeve notes. And he used to speak in a kind of gobbledygook sort of fashion. And some of the vernacular he used was based on the original novel, which is all sorts of mad slang. Some of it's Russian words and little bits of dialect about different things. So the gang have got their own slang. And he wanted to sort of kind of project that onto the Stones. So he had the sleeve notes on the first two or three Stones albums are really quite unusual. And I think in a funny way, that kind of subliminally fed into the Cappuccino Kid and uh, some of them unfathomable. Sort of, uh, <laughs> but people would pour over those things on the rear of the sleeve, wouldn't they? And try and work out who wrote them, what does it mean, all those kind of things. Yeah, yeah. So probably people in the room can memorise those and know them off by heart. You know, they were incredible things. Jay, for you, this was first time overseas touring with a band, and these lot are meant to be looking after you, and here they are showing you this horrific band film. 
Yeah, it was the first time away from my mum. She was, even though she was really shocked and upset that I left the post office, she she liked Paul Weller because I used to play the jam in my little record player in my bedroom. So she kind of like liked some, some of it anyway. And it's funny, my mum passed four years ago and her photo albums had all my Star Council pictures in there and she'd written captions she wrote the captions under not me like there's a picture of john his elbow on the stage like this he's doing something like and it was a sound check and i got my camera and i went you know he was like raging about something and my mum wrote under it and a final word from mr weller (laughs) like really cute but no i am I used to follow Mick Crowns a fair bit because... because <laughs> like a lost puppy. Like a, like a little puppy because he's so funny. I like that kind of witty, sharp, really funny. And I I, fa- I think I just laughed an awful lot, like wet myself laughing with Mick's humour. I've got a picture of Mick in my... Um, I, my mum bought me a fake fur coat for my 19th birthday. And there's a picture of Mick in my coat with my, college, my cousin's college scarf you know, doing a Noel Coward impression and that kind of stuff. You know, it was just it was just a lot of warm laughs and everything. I to my memory, I, I didn't um I couldn't talk to Paul very much because I just didn't know what to say. I As just, in like tongue tied I mean that's a fine episode yeah, of my I podcast, a, right? It's like I was a bit tongue tied. I was yeah. a bit because, you know, I it was from the jam, so yeah, it was hard. Yeah. But yeah, but Mick and, you know, the guys, it was just it was fun, yeah. Now, I'm going to come back to the running race in a sec, Jay, and how you broke Paul Weller's arm. Um, but first of all, <laughs> Stuart, let's talk about Japan, actually, and Stuart and Cam. So, um, you know, Japan was somewhere that you went on that tour where... There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com people today. I mean, it's nuts. And Cam, in your experience of Japan with Paul, with the Soul Council and with Solo, actually, I think, the gigs over there were completely different. The crowds over there are completely different. It was a very different experience, right? From a number of different perspectives. I mean, clearly, you don't think about the culture being that different until you go there. And this is so early 80s. Um, I'd never been anywhere like it. There's very little English signposting in the town, in the city, for example. But the big difference for I remember is that we had to perform quite early. The shows were fairly early in the evening, so six, seven o'clock. I'd bloody love that. Wouldn't that be yeah. brilliant? <laughs> and, and the audiences were basically asked to, to, to stay seated, which for the most part worked. But I do remember we... We did a gig in Tokyo, and we took the bullet, the bullet train down to Osaka. We did a show there that was getting really because we settled in after all the jet lag and everything had gone. We really sort of we hit our stride in Osaka, I think. 
And it was a fantastic show, but the audience were all sitting there. And, and I don't know what happened, but they started gradually to get up and start dancing. And the security people tried to get them to sit down again because it just isn't what you do. And, and it just kind of built and built and built. And then the promoter came out and tried to tell us not to, you know, to sort of provoke this wild behavior in these, these young people of Japan, a morally irreprehensible band that we were. I didn't go down too well, basically. And there was a bit of argy-bargy, I think, at the front. And before we knew it, the audience were not only dancing, but they were rushing up to the stage too. And it was quite a low stage. So to begin with, we were all thinking, oh, this is great. It's going to be a great. It's going to be a real big dance scene down here. Fantastic. But they kept coming. And, um, <laughs> and climbing up on the stage. So I don't know if you guys remember this, but I, I, there's a point we just suddenly went, oh, okay, and grabbed whatever we could and legged it off the stage. We, so we were taken back to the hotel. The next day, we were given a police escort to the station in Osaka and kept in a kind of locker room. Do you remember? I, I got that photograph was like a football team. Yeah. We were kept in a locker room until the train arrived and they could sort of whistle us out of town. It's like being a Western. It's kettling, I think they call it now, don't it? <laughs> but you were allowed back. You went back. Oh yeah, we did. yeah we did. That but, was that was right. What I thought, what I remember, isn't it? Do you remember? Yeah, yeah. 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 And I also think uh, Osaka's quite a long way from Tokyo, and maybe they're kind of the rebels of uh, you know. I don't. We were thinking, oh, maybe we should twin this place with Glasgow, you know, because it seemed <laughs> they've got a sort of uh, spirit that's not dissimilar. Cam, your experience in Japan with the Style Council and Weller Solo. I mean, you're treated like almost like gods out there in terms of celebrity status, right? All of you in the band. This is not just a Paul and Mick thing. I have to say, given the opportunity, that this ties into what's been really prevalent in my life about solid bond organisation. Being in the creative industries, you know, we observe, and I've observed from a very early age, just the beauty of entities working at a very high level, a very supreme level. And I've been given the gift of working with these people here and the solid bond organization with Nikki and Paul and John and Kenny, an astonishing organization. I know you know that already, but from my point of view, it's been a backdrop to something in my life that is, is just unquestionably one of the greatest gifts of my life because to observe the level of professionalism of this organization from an early age, from when I was with the Star Council to the Paul Weller Band, several times in Japan, in America, and in Europe and stuff like that. We didn't have to do anything. Everything was taken care of. We had to do our jobs, and we worked terribly hard. Going into rehearsals with Paul is no joke. It's like going to war sometimes. <laughs> but uh, seriously, you know, we, it really is. And when you come out the other side, you can play on any stage around the world and you can bring it on as good as anybody out there because he's got an, an astonishing work ethic. To this day, that's my model of operation in the industry. And in Japan, it was epitomized, you know. Yeah, we just, we just had to do our job and we were treated in such a wonderful way, never taken for granted, feet firmly on the ground. But you know what, it's just... Such a joy to have experienced that in our lives. And unfortunately, I had the best part of a, a decade in various facets of that with the organization, the Style Council and the Solid Bond organization. And I'll be forever grateful. I, I just have to say that given the opportunity here today. It's know. nice, isn't it? Because I think, I, think, yeah, I think it's also that thing of that benchmark is there that when you then come away from that setup, you realize that that's not the norm. Oh, God. I mean, it's totally the opposite out there, to be perfectly honest. I mean... 
you know, Jay and I have just been on a little bit of a journey now where I've been trying to actually implement some of those things and it's nearly killed me. That's why I've given up smoking. That's a fact. It's true. Yeah, you laugh at me, but it's true. You know, it's because that's some astonishing organization and to bring the family ethic in the style council was unquestionable. The family ethic, that unspoken serendipity that we were, we knew that we had to do our job to the best of our abilities and we had to do our homework really well. Otherwise we were in serious trouble. But the journey itself was such a, a, an amazing joy. The fun. I mean, I can, I can talk to you all year about the fun and the different aspects, but the fun, I mean, you know, uh, touring Italy together, you know, playing bulldog on the grass in, in Sheffield and staying in beautiful places, remote places outside of towns and coming in as a professional outfit and being, you know, very sensible. Let's talk about when Jay broke Paul Weller's arm. So, <laughs> <laughs> so this was a race. Who, who challenged who to the race, Jay? I think I was talking to Paul about how fast a runner I was at school <laughs> and, and that my, my 100 metres record was unbroken. In fact, actually, still is. last time I checked, which was only like maybe 10 years ago, it was still unbroken. So. Wow. <laughs> Don't you look at that. Get out of here. Stop it. Anyway, so <laughs> Paul said, I'll give you a race. Do you know he was really fast? I, got, I would imagine he's like a whip, isn't he? I he, bet he's he pretty was quick like a, now, isn't he? He was like, I, I had to, you know, make some effort. So we were, you know, bearing in mind, I'm a little girl and he's a tall guy. Anyhow, with longer legs. Anyhow, we were having a race to the tour bus. And I think we were kind of neck and neck almost. Um, or maybe I was like a nose in front of him. And I think he did this dive for the door. Because <laughs> Paul don't like to lose. No, I can right? imagine that, right? <laughs> At least that's, that's my recollection of it. And, and he just took a, a dive for the door and a tumble. And I was just laughing because I thought nothing of it. Like, ah, I beat you kind of thing. Or, no, I beat you. Anyway, he broke his arm. But he's I, still furious about it. Because <laughs> 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 presumably that upsets the dynamic that evening. How's he playing? The, was he playing what? the guitar much then anyway? Or? No, no. We had to change things around. It was uh, The actual date of this was April the 1st, April Fool's Day. And very sadly, it was the day that Marvin Gaye died as well. So it was just like the news that was coming through. It was just really odd. So it was a weird thing when we got the, the show together. But it was all hands on deck. And we rejigged thing. Anthony Harty said he could play the guitar. So we transferred him from bass to guitar. And Dave Little played bass, I think, for most of that Amazing. gig. Amazing. Yeah. So, and Paul's in a slick. Yeah. And we carried on like that. And we did like a, we did the, when we come back up. From Europe, he, there's pictures of him at the 100 Club with a broken arm. No shows got cancelled, but um, we had to kind of adjust. That's remarkable, isn't it? But yeah, the fact that you're not calling anything off, but also the fact that he will go to that length to win a race. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about some of the highlights in terms of songs. So initially, the 84 tour, I counted up the other day, I think there were like five instrumental, like jazz instrumentals, if you want to call that, in, on the tour set list, right? But again, you're bringing that diverse nature of the albums to the live stage, but different versions of things. I guess a song evolves on the road, right? Yeah, they do. It's like some of those tunes really did take off live. I mean, not just the instrumentals. The instrumentals were a chance to um, give people a bit more time to extemporize. People like Steve White and Stuart and, you know, horn players are soloing to try the flugel 
horn version of um, Le Depart, which we didn't record other than on live versions, and a chance to uh, really, I don't know, see what tunes work, like Strength of Your Nature. We used to dovetail with another tune, which I can't remember, but they seemed to work, and they took on a different energy live. Still remember, one? Was it Razor's Edge? Yeah, maybe, yeah. Some of the covers that we did kind of might have been used with that. Yeah, and I also think that um, Head Start for Happiness really took off live. It's captured very well recording-wise, but live that really was quite a highlight and i think everyone always enjoyed playing that i mentioned the japan gig we obviously got to see that on the vhs which i wore out the uh, far east far out gig and then dvd when it came out and the extras and all that which was fabulous uh, but there's a wonderful version of it came to pieces in my hands just came to pieces in my hands with you and paul and pretty much a cappella, i think was that that must have been a real highlight on the tour jay wasn't it every time that was played it was i mean there was tracks that i just absolutely adored Singing, yeah, and still well, well, give me some examples of what well, were the ones it just came to pieces and um, head start for happiness. I was telling Mick a little while ago out the back when we did head start for happiness, I just felt like I was in orbit, just like just a happy girl, you know. And I still feel like that when I play it. It's amazing that is that that power of music to transport you back somewhere. Whether you hear that song and you're transport as an audience member, you're transported back to that live gig. Yeah. But as a, as a member of the band, that must be the same thing. When you hear something on the radio, it's like, Christ, yeah, that was my life you know, 40 years ago. Yeah, no, no difference in, in feelings, still as wonderful. Do you know, I wanted to just tag on to what Camille said a little while ago, because Camille and I have been in rehearsals um, recently for the, this Central Line um, gig. And, yeah, again, it's that professionalism and the discipline that I learned in the Star Council I took through my entire career and I got to be known as, as like such a professional singer with a really professional attitude who could like just bang off vocals real quick. And I learned that with these guys. So I just wanted to. Nice. Was that um, something that came naturally? Were you aware of the responsibility you had to what was a really young crew? I mean, like Whitey was like 17 when he joined, for goodness sake. Yeah, well, Steve was hes quite unusual. He was very versatile. I think he played with like a lot of older people and um, he did a kind of sort of dance band thing which sort of like harked back to a lot of techniques that a lot of people his age, 17-year-old drummer, would have just dismissed and just thought, oh, that's hackneyed or old hat. But he had a kind of broad spectrum. So we were fortunate... That was something to build on. I mean, when I first met Steve, I was in a band called The Bureau and we were at the Albany Theatre in Deptford, South London. And um, him and his mate, Gary Wallace, who did do a bit of percussion work with us, were like little drum spibs. They had a secret source of drumsticks and every band that turned up to load in, they'd just go like Flash Harry in the St. Trinity going, want to buy some cheap drumsticks, open up their coat. And it was just like that. And it just... <laughs> And that was him when he was about 16. Wonderful. Now, we're going to get on to the end of the band in a second. Emotional time for everybody involved, obviously. But let's talk about some of these huge big gigs. Because one thing I love with the Star Council, how you were, you were dialing it up into big things and then dialing it back down in terms of the number of people in the band. So Glastonbury being smaller, Live Aid being smaller, Wembley, Showbiz. And Stuart, you were part of that setup with this huge big orchestra, the horn section, all that, at Wembley. And it was very different. It felt, it felt quite different as well. Because from the early days, the gigs that we did, it felt like a really tight club band unit. I remember doing gigs in, in small places in Germany where the horn section and uh, we were in line with Paul and, uh, and Mick. Come the Wembley shows at the very end, if you like, of that, we were kind of somewhere like four miles back on a podium at the, you know, 
in the car park. So yeah, it was it was it was a very very different experience. It was you know, it's still hugely valuable, but it, it, I don't know the whole thing had. In, to my mind, it sort of changed a little then. The, the, the atmosphere was different. It was a much bigger machine. We'd just come off the back of a UK tour, I think, which didn't have the strings in, did it? I think the, uh, the lineup was sort of really bolstered from a strings point of view and, and extra brass because we, we were um, at Wembley and it was being filmed. And I think some of those rostrums and, and the space between the band and different sections was to help it be filmed better I think it was amazing. I do think the Wembley gig was a compromise of sorts because we were aware that we we're going to be shooting a lot of that so that had to be taken into consideration as well which in a kind of way it does my brain in a little bit because I always respect the punter in the room with you at the time and I think you know if the film can happen then that's a bonus when you start compromising it I'm, I'm in two minds then but you've got to work out somehow how to do it you know now, look, it's Glastonbury weekend this weekend. I'm seriously linking the heck out of that and hoping my skybox has got enough space. But we'll come on to the white jeans at Glastonbury in a second. First of all, I want to see if any of you remember this. This is a quote from Paul Weller, okay? He said, One thing I remember about the Style Council is watching Mickey Talbot fall into his food, which was quite a regular occurrence. <laughs> I remember we lagered up in Italy and Mick just went bong straight into his spaghetti. He was always falling asleep in bars too, and you'd paint his face with makeup. Yeah, well, not not all. <laughs> I don't think I, I may have nodded off once or twice. You know, not the everyone. Are denying it's a common occurrence? But I don't know that I got made up too often. I did get made up very well, but mainly by Helen Turner. I think uh, it was my preferred makeup artist. <laughs> when I did conk out, yeah, I might have overdone it on the uh, you know on the road now and again but then it was only a few years before that that I was on the dole and I couldn't believe that I was uh, you know yeah, you having a whale of a time probably too much of a whale of a time but um, yeah Helen did make me up rather well what it, with Bear Rouge and in, Blitz, yeah lots of things yeah. yeah and I think that was in Japan and I think I don't even know if I conked out when I was with them I think someone cheekily got a pass key and came into my room and did it I think Dennis Mundy covers that and I pretended that I didn't know about it and came down to breakfast as if nothing had happened with the makeup on and embarrassed a few people <laughs> think, oh, don't sit with us what? what's the matter there you are I, I was uh, you know bending my gender long before it become uh, <laughs> the thing to do uh, let's talk Glastonbury. So this was like a really wet, horrible year for Glastonbury. White jeans were not the... I mean, they were obviously all the rage at the time. You guys were getting them from Europe. You're looking smart in yellow casts and all that. But white jeans at Glastonbury Festival on a muddy year was not a cool thing, Cam. Was that, whose idea was it? Because you were like a fashionista as well. Was this your idea? I, I tied in with the fashion. I quite liked a little bit of, you know, kind of uh, Lacoste and the, and the white jeans and the orange jumpers and shirts and stuff like that. I, yeah, I was, the cardi around the neck yeah, and all yeah. that. Yeah. What I remember about Glastonbury was that we got there early. We got there early on a coach and it was like three, four foot of mud. And so we had a lot of time on our hands and we just got tanked, didn't we? We, we got plastered, basically. Pissed, pissed on Perno. Honestly, and so when we got on stage, we were, we were a bit of a, I think we were a bit of a, well, I was a bit of a mess, I know that much. Yeah. And I had to play this, I had to play Mix Pro 1 analog synthesizer and it often heated up and went out of tune. It went out of tune that day badly, you know. Yeah. But fortunately, because we were all so tanked, it didn't matter so much. And we were falling over risers and stuff like that. And somebody said to me in the, in the, in the paper the next day, there was a couple of us leaning over risers, looking up at the sky. Kind of <laughs> it was all good fun. All good yeah. Yeah. And straight off the back of that is Live Aid, like almost the following yeah. weekend, I think, or a couple of weekends later. A lot of big gigs that year, yeah. 
quite frightening. I mean, the, you know, the Glastonbury thing, it was probably Perno was to blame largely, I think. But um, I think it was raining as well. And it was like a scene out of MASH, you know, the Korean oh, War movie. I think the crowd were with us because it was raining and we opened up with Long Hot Summer. We decided to <laughs> rejig the set. Yeah. <laughs> Just absolutely take the piss. I love it. Um, we also get a trip to Japan. We go down under. There's, you know, you'd expect you're flying from Melbourne to Sydney, but no, we're going to hire a train for that journey and decked out an entire carriage and made it a studio. Yeah, we were, we were lucky. I mean, the promoter that did that, it, nothing seemed too much trouble. And he said, uh, I think he was aware that there was quite a thing with John and Paul. They didn't like flying any more than they had to. I mean, which is a bit tricky if you're trying to tour the world. But um, once we were in Australia, I mean, country that vast it's like taking a bus to them but it's just like why would you want to be on a train for like 14 hours when you can get in a plane for an hour but we did it and he tried to give us a lot of things to occupy our time so we had we had one carriage that had a whole set of instruments in it so we could just go down there and play so it's quite funny it felt like you're in a bit of a like the film or an episode of the monkeys or something it just felt, felt a bit surreal there was a lot of chat about the fashion. We've not mentioned Paul very much on this conversation, which is quite interesting, really, given how much important he was to the band. But, I mean, you and Paul talked a lot about fashion. I think Shaney was saying to me, like, you'd go on holiday together as well, all of you, and then you and Paul would just be chatting about threads the entire time, talking about fashion like a, like a couple of old ladies was how she referred to it, I think. Well, yeah, I suppose so. I mean, when you kind of share a similar history and Paul's like about four months different to me in age, you we were similar vintage and you, you kind of recollect on certain things. So, you know, you, you see eye to eye, you, you lose track of time. But I think, you know, we're being monitored by our partners going, you realise how long you've been talking about trousers or something? Like 11 so hours. It's a long flight and it, it could be worse. Now, look, we'll come back to that finale. But 87, 88, it gets a little quieter for the band. I want to talk about where we go off to because, Jay, you go off Curiosity Killed the Cat, Name a Number, one of the best songs ever created, in my opinion, and fucking awesome. is a huge part of that song. We've got the brand new heavies. Yes, give up the brand new heavies, please. <laughs> Working with the likes of Michael McDonald, Whitney Houston, Cece Peniston, Jermaine Stewart, Gladys Knight. But then it turns to acting, teaching, writing, producing, and so much more since. But still loving the music. That's always been something you're so passionate about. But the Star Council, when you look back now, was such an important part of your life and such an important part of the Jay that we see sat here today, wasn't it? It brought you out of yourself, yeah? Yeah, actually, yeah. In fact, having worked with some of the best people ever in the world, like, you know, like I was telling my son the other day, just because he was talking about the JBs and like he's just discovered the JBs. You know, you grew up with James Brown, obviously, because I play everything in the house, but... And I said, oh, yeah, and I showed him the, the record that I sung the title track on a, on a JB's album. He almost fainted. <laughs> and I'm like, he's like, Mum, you've got to tell me more about your life. But, he, but my kids know that the Style Council, bar none, it was the best experience of my life for my career. Do you know what I mean? And I don't know if it's because it was the first. No, it wasn't. Actually, it wasn't because it was the first because mm. I was in a little reggae band called La Famille before the Star Council, very briefly, and um, it wasn't a very nice experience, actually. It was just a little basement band. But, it, you know, I saw Star Council, where I really cut my teeth and really learned how to be a professional singer and learned how to get on with people because, you know, I was just a quiet kid that came from a, a really violent 
household. So, yeah, sorry, I'm not going to get into all of that. But when and you got on stage, you became something else. Like, it was I think remarkable I be- watching it. Do you know you, what I think? That person on stage, I think I became you? the real Jay because I had to diminish myself in my family. But what I found fascinating, like Kamel touched on, was how a family works properly. So I was in awe of John. I was in awe of Paul. I just, I just watched them. I just watched them interact, watch their family dynamics. There's so many different areas of my life that that whole experience enhanced. So, yeah, I, I have nothing but, even though, like, when I left, I was like, it took me quite a while to get over not being in the band anymore because, um, that, for me, that was heartbreaking because I just loved it so much. But, you know, I'm a grown woman now, and, and it was fucking fantastic. <laughs> there's, a, there's a quote for the poster, ladies and gentlemen. A quote for the poster. Um, Stuart, we talked on the podcast, so please do have a listen to this chat, because I'm aware that we've only got kind of seven minutes left. But you went into the corporate world, but also, folks, has had a number one classical album. We know less than Mr. Hugh Bonneville, who's a good pal. So it's still dipping your toes into the music, but you decide to move away from music for a while. But you're, st- you're obviously still passionate about it. But we're kind of getting more of you doing some more of that. We're going to team up with Hillary and Star Council and stuff. But you walked away for a while. Yeah, I did. I, um, I got a straight job. Uh, just for a while. <laughs> just for a while. Yeah. I played with some smaller, not well-known bands like Lehman Brothers. But it, it, it was just a time when I needed to have some, some different kind of uh, stability. So I did that. I always played all the way through. But I can ha- I'm happy to say I'm over that now. I've seen the light. And uh, the number one classical album was kind of the start of that, just a f- uh, only a few years ago, which was great. And so, no, I mean, echoing what the other guys have said, the Star Council was probably the most important, most influential musical experience of my life. I learned a lot from it. Not just some of John's, I know you were talking about mix uh, anecdotes, but John's anecdotes, you know. I learned phrases like, it's not a problem, son, it's a situation. <laughs> And that's, that's really held me in good stead for years and years. I'm still playing, I'm writing, I've got my own music coming out and working with X-Sax Play of Culture Club on another project. And also, as, uh, as, you, as you said, just talking recently, I bumped into Hilary Seabrook, the original sax player of the Style Council at um, Love Supreme Jazz Festival last year. And we said, we ought to do something together. And so we are doing something. So the Prosser Seabrook project is coming to ear holes near you at some point this year. Yeah, I try and keep the flame going. Love it, love it. Um, I mean, I'm sure a few of you probably picked up the odd swear word or two from John and Kenny as well. And card skills. I mean, were any of you in the card thing? No. Well, I I, I did join the card school just very briefly. Uh, <laughs> I was not not um, that well versed in it, but I did quite well in a game with Kenny and uh, John, and um, I, it shocked me a bit. But we were in Germany, and we had a bit of time on our hands, and I spent all my winnings. I bought the smoking jacket that I'm wearing on um, Walls Come Tumbling Down, where I was once again in makeup. Yeah, what of it? <laughs> there's and, a theme. Uh, there's and, a theme and, here. And, yeah, and some trousers as well. And um, Kenny said, "What were you all done up like a ten bob and bone?" I, I just went, "It's me winnings, isn't it?" He went, "You're not supposed to spend it. <laughs> Get back to the table and lose it." I went, "Do you know what? You're, you're so angry. I'm retiring from the castle." <laughs> I'm out. And that was it. Let's talk about that final gig then. So Cam, final gig, Royal Albert Hall. You've just done Tokyo. It's gone down a storm. The new house music, the, the new venture, modernism, what's coming next for the Style Council. 
We get the role our hall gig. And you had quite a big role in that final gig as well, working with Paul and Mick. This is a real, who was there? Anybody in that final concert? Right. So, so we got like a real diverse mix of people coming up. It was Omar, I think, was on that gig, wasn't he? We got Dr. Robert. The oh, greatest hits has just come out, but we don't play any of it. Yes. <laughs> I mean, there's a bigger conversation there, but you, you got involved with Paul and Mick in that. Sentence. I was allocated the musical director role. Big mistake. <laughs> Kamel's good. He's, we trusted him to do it, and yeah, it meant that we could get in a little bit later and do a bit of shopping, I think. Obviously, a, a major transition in the music industry. It was morphing, right? And it caught up in the, the record company, not wanting to make the right decisions with regards to the careers and stuff like that. And yeah, I took on that mantle. It was a great experience because I'll never do it again. But 16 people you know, touring Japan and stuff like that is a real nightmare for me. But I could understand the relevance of it. And I learned a lot from it, as you do from things that you, you, you embark upon. You know, I, I learned a lot from that. The Japan gig was broadcast on radio. So you can hear it. It's like a bootleg thing or whatever. And it's a, it's a really strong gig. It's a funny. Strong set, you know? When I listen back to that Japan gig, I think, well, I'm surprised. I didn't know it's was, it was pretty, pretty good, actually. But the Royal Albert Hall, not... Well, yeah, that perhaps uh, Japan was ready for more than Britain at the time. Well, the remarkable thing is, like, 18 months, maybe less than that, actually, later, that the charts are just dominated by that type of music, you know, so you were ahead of the curve. Possibly, who knows, you know. I'm pleased it saw the light of day. It would have made more sense at the time, though, I think, that the yeah. album that got away. Final question for me about that gig. Who was in charge of the fashions that night? Because that was pretty special, the, the kind of fluorescent outfits and the... The beanie hat and, the, yeah, the Levi's looked cool, didn't they? But that did not look cool. Well, I, I had my own version of that. I wasn't really quite in the day glow sort of zone. I had sort of long linen Bermuda shorts and um, I, I think I had two-tone um, saddle shoes. So it, I, I had a slightly different slant on it. I probably looked like a sort of uh, a throwback to like a 1920s golf player or something <laughs> who'd uh, lost his plus fours and put some shorts on. <laughs> Well, there you go. What an absolute joy that was. The legend that is Mick Talbot and a panel of honorary councillors, Jay Ella Ruth, Stuart Prosser and Kamel Hines. Thanks so much once again to my very special guests. An absolute one-off, I'm sure, celebrating 40 years of the Style Council. Brilliant stuff. Now, don't forget, if you enjoyed this episode, you can head to my website to find out more. You can also get yourself some official merchandise in my store, including our pin badge and mug. Plus, if you fancy it, get yourself a virtual coffee as well. Hello to Grant, who's done exactly that. Hello to Duncan. Hi, Duncan. Thanks to you for your virtual coffee. Hello to Ian. Thank you, sir. Sean Wilson. Thank you so much to you, mate. Hi also to John Reed. It says, I'm so pleased it didn't end on episode 150. Keep up the great, insightful world you're uncovering for me, stroke us. Thanks, Dan. Well, cheers to you, John, for your virtual coffee as well. Hello to Rich Gill. Hi, Rich. Hello, Peter E. Thank you to you, mate. Much appreciated. If you want to get involved, just head to my website, paulwellerfanpodcast.com. You can also get in touch on social media, on Twitter, at wellerfanpod. Plus, you can find me on Facebook, Instagram, and now Threads, just by searching for Paul Weller Fan Podcast. On the very next episode of the podcast, we go back to that Weller Weekender once again for a very special episode of Desperately Seeking Paul with Steve Nichol. The absolute legend talks about his time with the jam on this podcast. Stay tuned. That's coming next. Thanks for listening. I'll see you next time. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.